morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. We celebrate our, all of the ladies here this morning for Mom's Day. We celebrate all ladies because you can be a mom biologically or spiritually, and so we applaud you. Uh, you get the day off. Get back to work tomorrow, though. You got to get back at it. Hey, we did uh, something a week ago. If you had a chance to be there, we had quite a number of people there. Uh, about 150 or so showed up for this event. You guys know what that event was? <laughs> Baptism. And it was, once again, I'm always reminded uh, of Romans 1:16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. If you could have been there to hear the testimonies of people making a public declaration of their faith in Jesus, it would have taken you to the sky. I mean, it was just overwhelming. Uh, anybody here in this service that got baptized? Anybody? Would you show, uh, stand? There's a, there's a young man right back there. Let's, uh, right, right there. Why don't you stand on up? Stand up. Let's give him a hand. There's another one right there, right there. Woo-hoo. Good job. Good job. Your brother baptized you, didn't he? Wasn't that cool? And we had something happen that's only happened one other time, is that we baptized three generations. So the father got in the, uh, in the pool, and we baptized him, and then his son got in the pool, and he baptized his son, and then the father and son baptized grandpa. Isn't that amazing? And so that's the second time that's happened uh, here at Desert Breeze. And the guy's name is Tim. The father's name is Tim. And this is what he told me a number of years ago. He was invited by someone to come to one of our Christmas services. And uh, he heard the gospel probably for the first time where he began to really understand it. He goes, no, that's not the gospel. That's too good to be true. There's no way. I'm going to go back to just make sure that that's exactly what he said. And he came back to church and it ravished him, it got a hold of him, it transformed his life, he put his faith in Jesus and it has transformed his life and now you're seeing the rippling effect throughout his family as a result of the gospel message. So, good stuff, oh my goodness. I was just overwhelmed by all of that. And uh, so, hey, we've got a great study today. This study overwhelmed me the last couple weeks as I was reflecting on it, so hopefully I'll be able to get through it this morning. Last night I could barely get through it. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 28. We'll look at 28 and 29. Exodus, the way out, God's holiness. You can also grab your sermon notes out and follow along. If you're bored with God, having a hard time trusting God with the serious questions or intense suffering of life, if you're not being completely transformed by God, then you're not living in the reality of the holiness of God. If Christ doesn't overwhelm you and stir up within you such feelings of amazement that you can't get over him, then you're not living in the reality of his holiness. Now, take a look at your sermon notes here. Let me bring you up to speed of where we've been as we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. By the way, we have, uh, we got six more weeks and we'll be finished up with this book. We're racing to the end. And so six more weeks, we'll be finished up with the book and I'm out of here, okay? <laughs> now, my wife and I will be out of here for two months for a sabbatical. We thank you so much for being able to do that. But we're, we're finishing up, we're gonna be finishing up uh, Exodus and we'll be doing that within the next six weeks. And I think perhaps this is the best part of the book of Exodus. 
I love particularly in a couple weeks, uh, chapter 33, where we talk about the glory of God, but I loved, I absolutely love this uh, idea and understanding of the holiness of God. I pray that it overwhelms you as much as it has overwhelmed me in the last few weeks as I've been reflecting on it and thinking about it. But let me bring you up to speed here. Exodus uh, chapters 1 through 18, uh, God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt And then in Exodus 19 through 40, which is the second part of the book, so he rescues them, he redeems them as he does us. It's a great picture of our redemption. He sets us free from those things that enslave us, and that's anything that we love more than we love him, and those things will enslave us and ultimately disappoint us and devastate us. So he sets us free from those things and so that we can worship and serve him And then in the second part of the book, Exodus 19 through 40, in route to the promised land, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai where God invites them into a covenant relationship and comes to live among them in the tabernacle. And so that's what we talked about last weekend. Uh, Darren did a phenomenal job. He covered, let's see, 24 to 27. How many uh, uh, chapters is that? 24, 25, 26, 27. Let me get my shoe off here so I can count. Uh, So four chapters, and uh, it was titled The Blueprint for Worship. Was that four? Okay. Exodus 24 through 27. So blueprint for worship, which is the tabernacle, the presence of God. Now, there's a major problem with this, though. We've got a major problem. We are sinful. God is holy. God's holiness is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. Nothing sinful can be in the presence of God without it being destroyed and consumed. So how how do we get into the presence of God? This is our greatest need, by the way. This is the best part of the Christian life is the presence of God. How can we experience the presence of God? How can we know the presence of God? I love what St. Augustine said. You have made us for yourself. This is part of his confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Listen to me, you were made for intimacy with God and for his presence. But there's a problem, he's holy, we're sinful. So how do we get into his presence? How can we experience his presence? This text gives us God's remedy. Now let me give you the thesis statement here. And you can see the outline of the, of the notes there when you look at the, glance at the notes is that God's holiness is deadly to unholy people. Therefore, we need holiness to experience God. Jesus, our great high priest, is our only hope for holiness. He's our only hope for the presence of God. That's where we're headed with our study this morning. So would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's ask for God's help as we uh, get ready to read this text and unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. Intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. Awaken our consciences to your holiness. Feed our minds with your truth. Open our hearts with your love. Captivate our imaginations with your beauty so that we can devote our lives to your purposes. Overwhelm us and stir up within us such feelings of amazement that we can never get over you. In your son's holy name, we pray these things. And everyone said, 
Amen. Let's, uh, let me read through the text. I'm not going to read. Uh, it would take us a little while uh, to get through these two chapters. There's a lot of detail here, but I'm not going to read both, all of the, uh, the two chapters. I'm just going to kind of skim through them. I'll show you the highlights of it. And uh, let's begin reading chapter 28, verse uh, 1. And so keep in mind, so they've already, he's already given them instructions on the tabernacle, the presence of God, but they can't just run into the presence of God. They have to be invited in, and there has to be some things uh, be taken, uh, taken care of here through priests and the priest garments and the sacrifices and all these things. So there needs to be provision for them to come into his presence. Listen to what it says. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadad and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. Now he goes through kind of a list and then he's gonna go into more detail the rest of the chapter on what those will look like. But here's kind of the list, the checklist. These are the garments that they shall make, a, a breast piece, an ephod, a rope, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. Now, the rest of this, all the way from verse 5 to verse 14, he, he goes into detail about the ephod. And then in verses 15 through 30, he gives details about the breastpiece of judgment. Adding to that in verse 30, this Urim and Thummim, which is interesting, and I'll, I'll talk about that as we work through it. And then in verse 31 through 39, he gives detail about the robe of the ephod. And, and in fact, I want to read, um, let me read starting at verse 33, because there's some details here that I think is really important. And he's talking about the robe. And on its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold be between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not, what's that word? Die. He does not die. That's, that's really important. So that, that's where we get the idea that when the high priest would go into this place of the holy of holies, uh, history tells us that they would actually tie a rope around their ankle and they had bells because they could still hear whether or not, is he still alive or not? Can we hear, hear ringing? The pomegranates represented Eden, fruitfulness. The bells represented joy. We'll talk about that. But, uh, but is he, because the, did we do all that we needed to do so that he's not struck dead? That's where we get that. So he was able to enter into the Holy of Holies. That's part of that so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So across this plate, which is part of his turban, there was this gold plate that said, holy to the Lord across 
the top of it. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on their forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now, the next part of this text, he talks about the, uh, the coat checker work of linen. He talks a little bit more about Aaron's sons, what they're to wear. And then let's pick up the reading in verse 42 where he talks about the linen undergarments. Verse 42, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place lest they bear guilt and what's the word there? They die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So you've got the priest and then their holy garments. That's 28. Move to 29 now. We'll get through it a little bit quicker. Look at verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priest to take one bull. They are to take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. So the, so this, the rest of this chapter is about their consecration and then their sacrifices that they're going to make for themselves and also for the people. What is this all about? What is this for? Well, jump to verse 43 now. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. So there it is. I will meet with them, his presence. They have access to the throne room of God because of this in the tabernacle. They can't just run into the tabernacle because God's there. They'd be struck dead. He's holy or sinful. So he's making provision for them to come close to him. Verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar, Aaron also and his sons, and I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel. There it is again. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, a lot here, and so how does this all apply to our lives? We desperately need his presence in our lives, and how can we know his presence? God's holiness is deadly to unholy people, and, uh, and so we saw that, that they're going to die if they don't do what he tells them to do when they come into his presence. We saw that in Exodus 28, 33 through 38, and then also in 43. I, I did a, a count on these two chapters. I, I, I counted the number of times he uses the word holy. Holy seems to be the big theme here. That's the reason why I went with God's holiness. And it's used 17 times in these two chapters. Holy place, holy God, holy garments. And so let me ask you this question. It's an important question. You need to be able to answer this question. Hopefully you'll be able to answer it at the end of this service if you, don't, if you can't answer it now. But what comes to mind when you think of God's holiness? You don't need to answer out loud or anything. Just think about that just for a moment. What comes to, to mind when you think of God's holiness? Describe a time when you were overcome by God's holiness. I was overcome by God's holiness as I was studying this. And then last night, I almost cried throughout the whole message. It was just, I was so overwhelmed. 
Here's your first fill in the blank on your notes. Let me define holiness for you. It is his transcendent perfection by which he tolerates no rivals and allows no impurity. And I say tolerates, he's actually, he has no rivals. There's no one that even comes close to him. But he, he, he tolerates no rivals and allows no impurity. And I've given you a number of verses here. I'm only going to read two of them. I've got one, two, three, four, five verses. You're going to read, you need to read these on your own this next week as you're working through the growing notes. Maybe you'll be doing this in your small group. But uh, Exodus 15, 11, remember that was the song of the redeemed after they were led through uh, the Red Sea, part of that, listen to what it says, Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. So the word holy means to be separate or set apart. It, it has the idea of cutting, uh, uh, a cut above and, of course, God is a cut away above us. He's in categories beyond categories. And that's the idea here. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. So holy means that he's perfect. He's perfect in every way. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. You cannot look upon God in his holiness and yawn. If you're bored with God, then you haven't encountered him. Or maybe you have encountered him, but you're not walking in vital union and communion with him. There's nothing, there's nothing boring about God. God in his holiness is stunningly and staggeringly glorious breathtakingly beautiful like nothing or no one you have ever seen or experienced. In this side of eternity, I mean, I've just gotten glimpses of it and it has overwhelmed me. I mean, even as I was studying this, it was just like, oh my goodness. This is, this is beyond my capacity to really fully, fully embrace. The higher our view of God, the stronger and more secure and satisfied we will be. Here's the next point. It's not just one of his attributes, but what is true about all of his attributes. Isaiah 6, 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So when the Bible, magnitude is conveyed through repetition. We also see that in Revelation 4, 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So it is the only attribute of God that is stated with triple repetition. You don't see that as it relates to God's love. It doesn't say God is love, 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 or God is wisdom, 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 or God is power, power, power. It's the only attribute where it's stated with that triple repetition. In fact, this attribute is acknowledged in the first part of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer begins with, Hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your character. Matthew 6, 9, God has a holy love, a holy wisdom, a holy power. Everything about him is holy. He's perfect in every way. It's mind-blowing. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says. He says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness 
by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Only the spirit of the Holy One can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the holy. Here's the next uh, thought. God is more holy than we can imagine and we are more sinful than we dare to think. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24, you're familiar with this. This is part of the fall. So God created us in his own image to have relationship with him. This all went south pretty quickly in chapter 3 because of man's rebellion. In the Garden of Eden, one bite from the forbidden fruit brought condemnation on the entire human race. I mean, think about that. Every disease, every famine, every natural disaster, every punishment came about as the result of a one bite from the forbidden fruit. And I've heard people criticize that and go, man, what's the big idea? What's the big deal about just they ate fruit? Okay. You don't understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. You don't understand the implications of that. You don't have eyes to see to, to make light of that. And then we've got examples of that throughout uh, Scripture. Darren pointed this one out, Leviticus 10, 1 through 7, sons of Aaron, the high priest offered unauthorized fire at the altar, and God struck them dead. 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant was being returned to Jerusalem on an ox cart when suddenly it began to fall. Yuza steadied the, the, the cart, or steadied the Ark, uh, with his hand to keep it from falling into the dirt, and God struck him dead for touching the ark because the law mandated that no one is to touch the ark. And then I gave you three other examples you're going to read on your own. We don't have the time to go through that, but First uh, Samuel 6, 19, Genesis 19, 26, Numbers 15, 32 through 36. Now, lest you think that that was uh, God before he was on his meds, and now we're in the New Testament times, and he's all mellowed out now, and he's, no, it's the same God, okay? This is the same God. We serve the same God that was in the Old Testament as is in the New Testament. So let me give you a New Testament example of that. It's found in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and both lie about giving all of it to the church, and God strikes them dead. Now, there's a great way to take an offering in the church. We don't even pass a plate, but hey, maybe we might start. We'll see. We use Acts chapter 5 as our reference. Listen to this. Uh, this is from a book I've, I've read. I'm on my second time through the book. I think it's really a great book. It's uh, by J.D. Greer. It's Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. And um, he, he helps to uh, kind of Help us, helps us to understand this. Sin's wickedness comes from its offensiveness toward God. The wickedness of any deed is measured at least in part by the nature of the one it is directed against. If you get mad and kick a wall, you might have to pay for the wall, but that's it. Do the same thing to a dog, 
however, and the people will think you've done a genuinely bad thing and probably not let your kids play, let their kids play with your kids. Do it to the lady next to you in the grocery store and you'll go to jail. Walk into Buckingham Palace and attempt to roundhouse the Queen of England and you'll probably won't see daylight for a long, long time. What about sin against the infinitely glorious God? How can we even begin to describe the wickedness of rebelling against him? Sin against the infinite holiness of God is infinitely wicked and deserves infinite punishment. The Bible's clear. The Bible's very clear about that. So even the smallest sin the smallest sin is a trampling on his love and wisdom. The smallest sin is a dagger into the very heart of God. It is saying to God, I'm smarter, smarter than you. I'm more loving than you. It is cosmic treason and defiance against an indescribably great and unimaginably good God. Listen to what... Uh, R.C. Sproul says in his book, The Holiness of God, I'm on my third time through this book. I would highly encourage you to read this book. Um, I read it years ago, and then the last couple weeks just preparing for this message, I read it a couple different times. It's just, it's phenomenal. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's really a, a book worth, worth reading. And he's quoting here from Hans Kung, H-A-N-S-K-U-N-G, the controversial Roman Catholic theologian writing about the seemingly harsh judgments of sin God makes in the Old Testament says that the most mysterious aspect of the mystery of sin is not that the sinner deserves to die, but rather that the sinner in the average situation continues to exist. Kung asks the right question. The issue is not why does God punish sin, but why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion? What prince, what king, what ruler would display so much patience with a continually rebellious populace? The key to Kung's observation is that he speaks of sinners continuing to live in the average situation. That is, it is customary or usual for God to be forbearing. Almost kind of they take it for granted. He is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed instead of taking advantage of his patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness. We use his grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he is powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. Far from being a history of a harsh God, the Old Testament is the record of a God who is patient in the extreme. The Old Testament is the history of a persistently stiff-necked people who rebel time after time against God. The people begin, become slaves in a foreign land. They cry out to God. God heard their groans and moved to redeem them. He parted the Red Sea to let them out of bondage. They responded by worshiping a golden calf. That's the story we're in. That's where we're headed. That's what we're seeing. Now, God is unbelievably patient and, and kind 
we experience the grace of an infinite God, but God's grace is not infinite. There's a limit. There are limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the ax will fall and his judgment will be poured out. That's what you see throughout the Old Testament and then even into the New Testament. That every so often you see his judgment being exercised. Someone's struck dead, boom. And we're like, what? He just touched the ark. Why would God do that? Because he's very patient and kind. And finally, the ax fell. And he's trying to wake us up to the reality of our sinfulness and his holiness. I, I know that a lot of people really struggle with this. I've talked to a lot of people that don't, don't even believe in God because of all the sin and suffering on this planet. And their reasoning is, well, how could God allow all, all of this? Either he's not loving or he's not all-knowing, or maybe he's not all-powerful. There must be something wrong with him. No, 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 there's something wrong with us. There's something desperately wrong with us. That, that's, that's what's, see, see, what is it? Why all the sin and suffering on this planet Earth? Because of man's rebellion. And it's putting on display not only man's rebellion, but God's patience and forbearance. He's being patient with us. I, I took uh, Psalm 103.8 and I've been reflecting on it lately and oh my goodness, it's just, it's been an over, overwhelming verse for me. This is what it says. It says this. It says, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now listen to me. He's merciful. You know what that word means? He has a deep affection for you. When you hurt, he hurts. He's hurt over the sin and suffering that's in your life, and he wants to bring remedy by his grace. That's what grace is. He wants to give you his presence, his power, his peace, but you've got to turn to him. But he's waiting for you. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger. He's giving you time. But if you're an unbeliever, I'm telling you, time is running out. You're running out of time. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. There's no one, there's no one that can love you like him. His steadfast love is better than anybody else's love in anything else in life. That's what that verse means. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is but patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't thumb your nose at God. Don't resist him. Run to him. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Oh my goodness. I mean, I plead with people regularly, what the heck are you thinking? You're delusional. Why would you chase the stuff in this world when you have him? It doesn't make sense. And I understand they're blinded. 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I plead with God, oh God, open their eyes. I had a young man come up to me uh, last night and he told me, uh, he'd been wanting to talk to me for a while and he said it was, it was his pride that was keeping him from coming up and talking to me. But he's in the valley and uh, maybe I shouldn't go into too many details. He's working for a professional uh, baseball team and, uh, and, he, uh, and he just said, uh, man, I'm, I'm beginning to see my idolatry. I'm, I'm, chasing, I'm chasing all of this stuff when I have a God. And I, I'm beginning to see that more clearly. And I go, praise God that you have eyes to see that. That's God working in your life. I just kind of celebrated with him. I, just, I was overwhelmed by that. And most people would, just, would envy him possibly and really want what he has and what he's doing. And uh, if you're not a Christian, you're running out of time. If you're a Christian, this is what you need to keep in mind. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, 10. And so what does that mean? This is what the fear of the Lord is. I like how Martin Luther puts it. He says, we are to fear God not with a servile fear like that of a prisoner before his tormentor, but as children who do not wish to displease their beloved father. Isn't that great? So God's holiness is deadly to unholy people. Therefore, we need holiness to experience God. That's the next section here. And so Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see God. You're not gonna see God. You're not gonna experience God without holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's command for us to be holy is his command for us to be happy. I mean, that's, that's what he's inviting us to. The greatest happiness we could ever have is found in our holiness and in him being a holy God. Holiness is being so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. That's what that young man told me last night. He goes, I'm beginning to see that more clearly because there's so many things that I would like to chase, but then I've realized what I have in Christ and now I'm, I'm so happy in God that I don't want those things anymore. I want him and I want more of him. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, how little people know who think, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. So Exodus chapter 28, you have priests, the mediators in their holy garments, and then chapter 29, their consecration and sacrifices for themselves and the peoples. So it's really giving us a picture of, of our holiness here. And so what does that mean for us to be holy? It means to be, uh, to be holy is to be holy, is to wholly belong to God. That's your next fill in the blank, to wholly belong to God. I get this from the text, Exodus 28, verses one, three, four, and 41, four verses where he says, I'm doing this for you to serve me, to serve me, to serve me, to serve me, to serve me. Exodus 19, six, remember, covenant love, just before he gave him the Ten Commandments, one of the things that he said there, Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me kingdom, a kingdom of priests. First Peter, let's take it into the New Testament, First Peter 2, 5 and 9, it basically says that every Christian is part of a holy and royal priesthood. Now, 
God, so what does that look like to be holy, to holy belong to God? This is what it looks like, this is what it means. It's, it's basically to say to God, God, because you created me, because you have redeemed me, my life is completely yours. Therefore, I will believe all that you say in your word. I will obey all that you command in your word in every area of my life, whether I agree with you or not. I will accept all that you send into my life, whether I understand it or not, I will thank you for all that you give, both temporal and eternal. But most importantly and foundationally, I will enjoy all that you are in and of yourself because intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. That's what it means to be holy, holy gods, to wholly belong to God. Here's the next thing it means. It means to... To be holy is to be fully clothed in his righteousness, thus the garments. So he says in Exodus 28, 2, holy garments. That's a picture of our righteousness that we put on. Verse 3 of chapter 28, to consecrate him for my priesthood. So scripture is the best commentary for scripture. And so Job 29, 14 kind of gives us a little bit of that understanding. He says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So one of my favorite verses in the New Testament helps us understand that is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we're clothed with the righteousness of God. So when, by, by grace through faith in Christ, when you do that, when you put your faith in Christ, immediately you have a positional righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. He sees you as he sees his son, Jesus. He has set you free from the penalty of sin. Boom, immediately, immediate status change. It's amazing. So that's positional righteousness. And then he begins to work on you, giving you a, a practical kind of righteousness where he begins to shape your life more and more into the image of Christ. It's called maturity. It's called holiness. It's called sanctification. So he sets us free from the penalty of sin. Justification sets us free from the, the power of sin working in our life. That's sanctification. One of these days when he takes us to be with him for all eternity, he will set us free from the very presence of sin, which is glorification. So the holy garments give us really some characteristics of a life wholly devoted to God. Let me go through some of these with you just very quickly. So the ephod found in chapter 28 of Exodus verses 5 through 14, a sleeveless coat made with the same material and colors as the tabernacle that his, his clothing would have been absolutely stunning. And so it gives us a picture that our lives, our lives should display God's beauty and glory and how we live out our lives. Uh, the breast piece of judgment with the Urim and the Thummim, which were black and white stones kept in the pockets of the breast piece for determining God's will. That's found in Exodus 28 through 15 through 30. This is showing us that we need to have a heart that seeks God's will and guidance. The robe of the ephod with the pomegranates and the bells on the hymn, that represents fruitfulness and joy. That's found in Exodus 28, 31 through 35. The, the plate of gold engraved with holy 
to the Lord, which was fastened on front of the turban on the forehead found in Exodus 28, 36 through 39. It's, what is that about? That's so that we would be reminded. We are to have a high view of God on our mind. So a high view of God on our mind and the holy life that he calls us to. It was right on the forehead, right there. What about the linen garments? Does that sound a little strange? Linen garments? Yeah, as opposed to wool. Wool would make you sweat. Linen would keep you from sweating. Sweating is man's efforts. God is more concerned about inspiration than perspiration, okay? And that's true. That's true. He's more concerned about your heart. It's more about being than doing. The doing will flow out of the being. Don't focus on the doing. If the doing's messed up, look at the being. We'll talk more about that next week. We're going to talk more about that next week when we talk about wholeness. What does wholeness look like? How do I know that I'm whole? How do I know that I'm healthy? What, what, and how do I get healthy? You do it by beholding the glory of God and you become whole. That's about being before doing. He's more concerned about our inspiration, our heart, than, than our work and what we're doing. He wants our hearts, and then the next one here is to, to be holy, is to see, savor, and show God's glory and beauty. So it's a work of God in our lives. Exodus 28.2, it talks uh, as it relates to Aaron. I don't know if you noticed this, but I read through it a few times. So in Exodus 28.2 for Aaron, and then also in verse 40 for Aaron's sons, he uses this phrase, why am I doing this? For glory and beauty. That's why I'm doing it. I'm wanting to put on display my glory and my beauty. And so how do we put on display the glory and beauty of God? I, I gave you a, quite a number of verses there on that. I, one of my favorite is Psalm 27.4. David is running the full gamut of problems that are happening in his life, all the way from enemies on the outside and enemies on the inside, his own family members. He says, even if I have hundreds of thousands of enemies on the outside trying to come after me and kill me, and even if my own family abandons me, if I have this one thing, I know I will be okay. What was that one thing that he was talking about? It's Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I, may, yeah, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty. If you want your life to be transformed, we'll talk more about it in the next coming weeks. I love these chapters in Exodus. It's in the gazing upon the beauty of the Lord that transforms us. We've got to learn how to do that. It's in the beholding that's what he says, if I can gaze upon his beauty, I'll know I'll be okay. That's having a high view of God. You've got to see it to savor it, and you've got to savor it to show it. So let me ask you this question. What is the best, what is the best way to put on display the glory and beauty of God? What is the best way to put on display the glory and the beauty of God? Anybody here have loved ones, relatives, friends that desperately need to come to Christ and you want them to see Christ, well, what's the best way for you to put on display the glory and the beauty of Christ to them? Well, you've heard me say it. I say it all the time. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's how you do it. You find your satisfaction in him and you put that, that's gonna naturally, you don't have to try to figure it out and go, okay, what should I do here and how can I, how can I put on display the glory? No, 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 just gaze 
upon the beauty and the glory of Christ. Let him sweep you away by his holiness and all that he is, and it will be a natural overflow of your life. You can't help but do it. And so therefore, people should be able to conclude from your life that Jesus is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or death can take away. They ought to be able to look at your life and how you're responding to the circumstances and the people and the things of life and go, wow, I don't know how they do it. They're not in denial because I can see them grieving, but at the same time, in the midst of their grief, I see a desire, I see a satisfaction, I see a joy that goes beyond their grief. You see, the gospel gives us a love, a joy, a peace that all the success in this world can't give and all the suffering in this world can't take from us. His presence, his power, his peace. Those who are closest to God are those who are most on fire for God. The closer you get to God, oh my goodness, the more on fire you're going to be for him. Your life is going to be lit up. Believe me, you can't help but be lit up. When you're that close to God, the living God, oh my goodness, there's nothing like it. I was wrecked a long time ago. I mean, man, as a kid growing up in the church, I had encounters with God, and then later on in my life, it just, it was just mind-blowing. And uh, if you want to know the true condition of your heart, don't look at your sins. Look at what you boast in. We're all living for something. We're all boasting in something. Listen to the things that you talk a lot about. It's going to tell you a lot about your words are a window into your heart. What do you love to talk about? And uh, Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ to whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world, Galatians 6, 14, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength. Wise, strong, or the wealthy person boast of their wealth, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows God. God's holiness is deadly to unholy people, therefore we need holiness to experience God. Jesus, our great high priest, is our only hope for holiness, our only hope for the presence of God. This is really fascinating. The ephod, it was a sleeveless coat that was held together at the shoulders by a special clasp. Uh, on each of the class up on the shoulder was an onyx stone uh, engraved with the names of the six tribes of Israel. So they had six tribes on one shoulder, six tribes on the other uh, shoulder, which was showing that the high priest carried his people on his shoulders. It's an interesting picture. The breast piece was a beautiful cloth pouch that hung over the high priest's heart with golden chains and blue lace holding 12 precious stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel, close to his heart, along with the Urim and the Thummim. The high priest not only carried his people on his shoulders, but he carried his people near and dear his heart, which is a beautiful picture of our Savior. That's the next point in our notes. Our great high priest carries us on his back and near and dear his heart as precious jewels. Hebrews 11 Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins once and for all. The Bible tells us that. 
Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, he understands our weaknesses and makes a way for us to receive mercy and grace. Hebrews 12, 2, that's why it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He did that for you so that you could come into the presence of God. Here's the next point in your notes. Jesus is the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So this is how we put all these chapters together. From 24 to 29 in the book of Exodus, you have the tabernacle, you have priest, and now you have sacrifices. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Imagine a conversation between a first century Christian and her, Rome, and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great, religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do do your priests work and do their ritual? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priest? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies replies the Christian, Jesus is our sacrifice. Well, what kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor? And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. And if you believe what Christ has done as the ultimate tabernacle and priest and sacrifice, it will change you, and this is how it will change you. This is 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house temple, now think about this, we become the dwelling place of God individually and corporately. We can experience his presence. So you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, temple, to be a holy priesthood. What is a holy priesthood? We help people to connect with God. We build a bridge to them so that they can see God in our lives. And how do we do that? To offer spiritual sacrifices by giving of our time, our talent, and our treasure to God. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So Father God, your holiness is deadly to unholy people like ourselves. Therefore, we need holiness. We need holiness to experience you in our lives. Your presence, your presence is our greatest need. We were created by God. We were created by you, for you, to give glory to you. Our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be the ultimate temple, priest, and sacrifice for us. We acknowledge that. We celebrate that through communion so that now we can be your temple where you dwell, your priests who help others to connect with you and a living sacrifice using all that you have given given us for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.